I am a child of the 1990s. I came of age in the 90s anyhow. Really was a child in the 80s too, but I count the 90s as when I sort of uh, became aware of popular television. And in my household, popular television meant Star Trek. So maybe not quite so popular. But one of the, the favorite series, I shouldn't say one of the, but my favorite Star Trek series was the one that was airing when I was in high school, Deep Space Nine. I, I love it for many different reasons, but I have a lot of strong memories of watching those programs aired for the first time, and this was back before you could ever watch them again. Uh, you had to wait for the reruns. What's a rerun? Um, they said that in the movie Back to the Future, remember? And they were right. We don't know what reruns are anymore because we can watch anything anytime. But in those days, how old do I sound right now? This is terrible. So old. Um, let's focus. My favorite series is Deep Space Nine. And one of, the, one of the races, one of the sets of aliens that exist in this world are called the Jem'Hadar. These are bad guys. They are warriors. And they um, are the, the military, sort of, that are fighting against the good guys. And the Jem'Hadar are these uh, creatures that have been genetically engineered. They have been bred and, and raised, basically, uh, and, and engineered to be warriors, to be really strong and valiant and never give up and all of this stuff. They're, uh, they're really tough dudes. But one of the tricks of their genetic engineering, the people who kind of created them, is that they engineered these creatures to be addicted to a drug that the creators control. And they give them this drug when they perform well. And uh, so the, the Jem'Hadar learn very quickly to be obedient to their masters, because that's how they get the supply of the drug that they're addicted to. And um, it sets up an ethically questionable kind of scenario, but one that kind of works for them. These warriors, the Jem'Hadar, before they go into a battle, have a saying that they repeat to each other, kind of a mantra or a, a creed that they repeat so that they can get pumped up for battle. And what they say to each other is, obedience brings victory, and victory is life. Obedience brings victory, and victory is life. Of course, for them, life means a couple of different things, not just being alive for having survived and won the battle, but it also means the drug that they get, so uh, victory brings life. You know, everybody's happy when they win, I suppose. Obedience brings victory. Victory is life. For many of us, especially for many Christians in our society. We live in a dualistic kind of world that resonates with this idea of obedience and victory and life. For us, these three terms, obedience, victory, and life, are interpreted in very specific ways. You're either in or you're out. You're for us or you're against us. There is this division between us and them, whoever they may be. Obedience is contrasted with disobedience. You're either in or you're out. There is pressure on us as individuals to obey God or suffer the consequences. 
Victory is also an in versus out dualistic kind of idea. You either win or you lose. And the pressure is on us to influence our culture so that we might win the cultural battles of the day. And of course, life is an in or out sort of thing too. You're either in the circle of life or you're not, I suppose. And as more and more people grow up and walk away from organized Christianity, which is a cultural reality in our time, we who remain grow more and more concerned about whether or not we will survive into the next generation. We are tempted to agree with the Jem'Hadar. Obedience brings victory, and victory is life. Life and victory for us, often at the expense of loss and death for others. Who know Jesus are going to heaven, but people who don't know Jesus aren't. We have the right religion or the best religion or the correct religion and other people who follow other religions are really following counterfeit religions. If we are going to see the ascendancy of Christianity in our day and age, then we need to win this court case or that election or end these practices or force these events to take place. These are all things that we say to each other. And they all follow that pattern of dualism, in versus out, us versus them, winning versus losing. This kind of thinking even applies to our own individual spiritual lives with God, especially when we think about the atonement, the the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, the forgiveness of sins that we receive from Jesus. Having a right relationship with God, you're either in the circle or you're not. And naturally, our thoughts about this have to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we think about the atonement, that one of the prevailing theories of how the atonement works is something called substitutionary atonement, where Jesus is the substitute for us. In other words, God is so angry at us for the sins that we have committed against God that God must exact some kind of a punishment. There is a penalty that is due, and he inflicts all of his wrath, not on us, but on Jesus instead. Jesus is the substitute, the the sacrificial lamb. There's scriptural language to support all of this. The one that takes the punishment of our sins in our place. And so Jesus goes to the cross, is executed so that we would not suffer. And so we have songs that remind us of this reality. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I was surprised this week as I thought about that song. It feels like a really old song, right? It feels like it's been around for ages and ages and ages. 1986. Relatively, relatively new. Not ages and ages, anyway. The wisdom of God takes a much more complicated and nuanced view of the victory of Jesus over sin than the ideas that I've talked about up to this point. The wisdom of God is Jesus himself, 
We've established that in previous uh, explorations through Colossians and a couple of other books in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. And this divine wisdom is all about giving life, making us alive in Christ, giving us fullness and completeness, wholeness in Christ. God, in his wisdom, desires to remove from us our sinful nature and to raise us to new life, just as God raised Jesus from the dead. This is the victory that God achieves in us and through Jesus. But the way that God achieves that victory is surprising, even scandalous, in our culture that values winning so much as we do. When we think about the victory of Jesus in the story of his life and death and resurrection, we often focus on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. That's when the victory took place, when Jesus broke the power of the grave and proved that he is more powerful than even death itself. And to that I say, yes, that is wonderful and that is beautiful and true. But Colossians guides us to locate God's victory at a different point in the story than at the day of resurrection. As important as the resurrection of Jesus is, more important is his death. And this is where we kind of get into trouble. This is where things stop making sense for us. This is where our cultural perspectives are called into question. Because the death of Jesus, seen from any human perspective, can only be understood as a complete and total failure. A loss. A defeat. This wandering teacher and miracle worker offended the religious leaders, the political leaders of his time, and they arrested him and had him publicly executed as a deterrent, I guess, so that others might not rebel and follow him as well. Jesus lost in a painful and tragic way. If it were not for the resurrection of Jesus then his story would end there in the grave, and we could rightly call it a tragedy, where the hero dies, and, and we are left with feelings that are evoked within us of, of, uh, of a strong, cathartic response to what he went through and the suffering that he experienced. It's a tragedy. The story of Jesus is a tragedy, like Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth in that sense, where the lead characters fall. And it is exactly there where Colossians turns things upside down. It is exactly there in the tragic and apparently meaningless death of Jesus that Paul, the author of Colossians, finds victory and meaning in what Jesus did. The wisdom of God's victory is not in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, The wisdom of God's victory is in the foolishness of the cross. In another book, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes these words, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than our wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than our strength. Jesus' death is not just tragic, it is ironic as well. The irony of Jesus' death is that what looks to be a failure is actually true victory. As the powers and authorities disrobed Jesus and nailed him to a cross, Jesus was disarming those very powers and authorities. As they publicly humiliated him by crucifying him in broad daylight, he was making a public spectacle of them. As they were exerting their power and achieving a victory over him, Jesus was triumphing over them by the cross. The wisdom of God's victory is that God's victory looked an awful lot like a failure. So what was so victorious about Jesus' death? Well, Paul explains here. The death of Jesus was all about forgiving our sins and making us alive with Christ. But the forgiveness that Paul writes about here is not the substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus takes on the wrath of God in the moment of the cross, that God's vengeance has to be paid somehow. No, he doesn't say that here. In the death of Jesus, God forgave all of our sins having canceled the written code. Written code is a weird term. Um, It's a word, it's one word in the Greek language where this was originally written, and it's translated in many different ways in many different English translations. The word literally means handwriting. It's, uh, if you were to translate the parts of it directly, it would literally say handwriting. God has canceled the handwriting against us. And other, another way to translate that term is, uh, uh, what's the term? There it is. A certificate. I lost the word certificate. Certificate of debt. In that time, you could sign for a debt to uh, say that you owed someone so much money or so much cattle or whatever it would be, and you would write out a handwritten note to say this is, the, this is what is owed. We do the same kind of thing in our culture today. There are things that you can sign to say that you're indebted to somebody else. And that is what God has canceled. God canceled the certificate of debt, the thing that we owed to him because of our sins. God has eliminated. God didn't demand repayment at all, let alone exact all of his wrath on Jesus. That's completely opposite to the idea that Paul is dealing with here. God did away with that debt altogether. Does that sound at all familiar from a story that maybe Jesus told in the middle of his ministry? A story that was even read for us so well by Leslie and Aliana just a few minutes ago? where a sinful woman comes to Jesus and starts crying over his feet and washing his feet and wiping his feet with her hair to dry them off. And the Pharisees say, oh, if he knew who that woman was, he would do away with her. And Jesus told this parable about who had been forgiven more, someone who owed so much money or someone who owed so much more money. 
And they're both, both debts are wiped clean. Who would love more? The one who had been forgiven more. That's the point. When Jesus went to the cross, he wiped away the debt that was owed. Canceled the certificate of debt. Nailed it to the cross. Put that certificate of debt to death. Even as he himself was being put to death. It's this Jesus who is our source of life. It is this Jesus who is the wisdom of God. This Jesus, by obeying God's will, going all the way to the cross, as God instructed him to do, even to the point of death, Jesus wins the victory by being obedient to God, and Jesus then brings us life through his victory. Or to say it another way, obedience is victory, and victory is life. To know the wisdom of Christ is to be connected to the source of life. To be separated from our sinful selves, to be made spiritually alive through the powerful and ironic tragedy of Jesus' death. When we are tempted to lean into a, a cultural dynamic of winners and losers, right and wrong, in and out, our people and not our people. We are driven toward a a spiritual practice of guilt and shame uh, that is based on guilt and shame. We are told, uh, we, we hold on to our opinions and our beliefs as if they are the swords and shields in the cultural battles of our time. And we are tempted to point to our religious practices as proof that we are somehow holier and more righteous and maybe just more right than other people. But Paul says that's not the point at all. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. It's a lot of fancy language to say, I think, what I'm to communicate here, which is uh, that our lives are not to be ruled by our opinions or our sense of guilt and shame or even our sense of religiosity. Our lives are to be ruled by our deep connection to the source of life, who is Christ Jesus himself, the tragic and ironic victor over every power and authority. So be connected to Christ. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, be connected to Christ. Experience fullness in Christ through pursuing spiritual practices that amplify love of God and love of neighbor. Ponder the wisdom of Christ who brings freedom and victory through his own death and rejoice in the unending spiritual life that he brings to us through his resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks that you alone are Lord, that you alone are the victor, and that you have overcome the world. Fill us with your spirit, so connect us to the head that we might be alive again. Revive us, O Lord. And help us to turn away from those things that might distract us from the way that you would have us to live. 
We give you thanks that you have overcome all things and that you have forgiven us of our sins, wiped away that certificate of debt that we have owed to you. We pray, Lord, that we would live into that reality every day. Not just today, but every day this week and every day for as long as the breath of life fills our lungs. Give us grace, Lord, that we might follow you today and tomorrow and all of our days. For it is for your sake that we exist. And for your love, for your love's sake, that we receive your love and reflect it back to you and to the world around us. We thank you for this letter of Colossians and for all that it says to us today. Help us to follow you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.